In the beginning, there was only the goddess Chaos, the gaping emptiness. Then out of her formless void sprang forth three more primordial deities, Gaia, the Earth, Tartarus, the Underworld, and Eros, Love. Once Love was there, Gaia and Chaos, the two female deities, were able to procreate and shape everything known and unknown in the universe. Chaos gave birth to Erebus, Darkness, and Nyx, Night. Gaia gave birth to Uranus, the starry sky. Uranus became Gaia's husband, surrounding her from all sides. Together, they produced three sets of children, the three one-eyed Cyclops, the three hundred-handed Hectonchires, and twelve Titans. However, Uranus was a cruel husband and an even crueler father. He hated his children, as it had been predicted that one of them would overthrow him. So, he imprisoned them into the hidden places of the earth, i.e. Gaia's womb. This angered Gaia, and she plotted with her sons against Uranus. She made a harp, a great adamant sickle, and tried to incite her children to attack Uranus. All were too afraid except the youngest titan, Kronos. Gaia and Kronos set up an ambush for Uranus. As Uranus was preparing to lay with Gaia, Kronos castrated him with the sickle, throwing his severed genitals into the ocean. From his spilled blood emerged the giants, the Malaya, or ash tree nymphs, and the Uranius, the Furies. From the sea foam that was produced when his genitals fell into the ocean arose Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. Kronos became the next ruler of the gods. He imprisoned the Cyclops and the Hectonchires in Tartarus and set the Dragonus camp to guard them. He married his sister, the Titaness Rhea, who bore him five children. However, Gaia and Uranus had both prophesied that Cronus would eventually be overthrown by one of his sons. So, much like his father, Cronus maltreated his children, devouring each of them at the time of their birth. Rhea was distressed by Cronus' treatment of her children, understandably, and just like Gaia before him plotted against her husband. On the advice of her mother, when it was time to give birth to her sixth child, Rhea hid herself on Crete leaving the newborn child to be raised by the nymphs of the island. To conceal her act, she wrapped a stone in swaddling clothes and passed it off as the supposed baby to Kronos, who, unaware of her intentions, swallowed it. The surviving child was Zeus. When the time came, Zeus left Crete to ask his future wife, the Titaness Metis, or Wisdom, for advice on how to defeat Kronos. She answered by preparing a drink indistinguishable from Cronus' favorite wine, but designed to make him vomit for ages. Zeus disguised himself as the god's cupbearer and slipped Metis' drink to Cronus. The plan worked perfectly. Cronus started vomiting and spilled out all of Zeus's five siblings, but only after throwing up the stone, called Amophilus, or the navel. The stone, or navel, was later set up at Delphi by two eagles Zeus sent to meet at the center of the world. Overwhelmed with gratitude, Rhea's children, Hestia, Demeter, Hera, Hades, and Poseidon, recognize Zeus as their new leader. Humans have been making art for millennia, starting in caves roughly 40,000 years ago. From those early beginnings, we have constantly striven to accurately portray and make sense of the world that we find ourselves in. But as sunlit and enlightened as the opening of a cave may be, there are equally dark places the farther in you go. Foreboding, dangerous, filled with fear and horror. We make art about those places too. Welcome to Artis Obscura, 
where we ponder and explore art from the dark end of the cave. Hi, I'm Kathy Rick, performance artist, installation artist, and photographer. For this week's episode, we're going to be discussing Francisco Goya and his black paintings, specifically Saturn devouring his son. You can find links to the pieces discussed throughout this episode in the show notes. Welcome to Artists Obscura, Episode 2, Castration and Cannibalism. Francisco Goya, in full, Francisco José de Goya y Lucientes, was born in 1746 in Fuendetoro, Spain. He died in April 1828 in Bordeaux, France. Goya was a Spanish artist whose paintings, drawings, and engravings reflected contemporary and historical upheavals and became very important to both 19th and 20th century painters. Goya began his studies in Zaragoza, Spain, under the tutelage of José Martínez, a local artist who had gotten his experience in Naples. He was later a pupil in Madrid of the court painter Francisco Bayo, whose sister he later married in 1773. Goya's career at court began in 1775 with a series of 60 paintings that he did as cartoons for the Royal Tapestry Factory. Before the outbreak of the French Revolution in 1788, the death of Charles III brought to an end the period of comparative prosperity and enlightenment in which Goya had reached maturity. The rule of reaction and political and social corruption that followed under the weak and stupid uh, reign of Charles IV and his clever, unscrupulous queen, Maria Luisa, ended with the Napoleonic invasion of Spain, which was a disaster. However, it was under the patronage of this new king, who raised Goya at once to the rank of court painter, that he became the most successful and fashionable artist in Spain. After an illness in 1792 that left Goya permanently deaf, his art began to take on a new character, which gave him free expression to the observation of his own searching eye and critical mind and his newly developed sense of imagination. During his convalescence, he painted a set of non-commissioned something that he called cabinet pictures. There's a quote here of his that says, I've succeeded in making observations for which there is normally no opportunity in commissioned works, which give no scope for fantasy and invention, which means basically that he felt the freedom after this illness to start exploring scenes of life in the world that wouldn't necessarily have somebody pay for them. It was work of its own volition for his own peace of mind. One of these works that sort of illustrates this new freedom was the madhouse. It's a scene that Goya had witnessed in Zaragoza, where he had gone into a madhouse and seen the inmates and what was going on there. Uh, it's a work of singular horror and despair, and it's very much a precursor to the black paintings. In 1799, Goya did a series of etchings attacking political, social, and religious abuses called Los Caprichos. Despite Goya's announcement that his themes were from, quote, extravagances and follies common to all society, unquote. They were recognized as references to well-known persons and were withdrawn from sale after a few days after being threatened by the Inquisition. Yes, the Inquisition was still in operation at this time. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! So now it's 1808 and all hell's breaking loose. Charles IV abdicates the throne 
and turns it over to his son, Ferdinand VII. Realize that this is the end of the 1700s, early 1800s. There was already a revolution in the United States. There was a revolution in France, and now there's a revolution in Spain. It's also the time of Napoleon. There was so many executions, upsets, protests, demonstrations in Spain that Napoleon's brother, Joseph Bonaparte, was able to come in and take over the Spanish royalty, monarchy, and government. And with all the troops occupying and invading Spain, it became a very, very, very dark time in Spanish history. Surprisingly, Goya retained his position as court painter and wound up painting portraits of both the French and Spanish generals. However, it was also during this time that he did a series of drawings that he would later turn into etchings that wound up being his Disasters of War series that were published in 1863. These were Goya's own observations of the French occupation that were his reactions to the invasion, the horrors, the disastrous consequences, and the atrocities that happened during that time. So, as we know, Napoleon was eventually defeated at the Battle of Waterloo, and just as an aside, Goya actually wound up painting a pretty nice portrait of the Duke of Wellington. Um, after Napoleon was defeated, obviously the French vacated Spain, and the restoration of Ferdinand VII happened in 1814. After the expulsion of the French invaders, Goya was pardoned for having served the French king and reinstated as first court painter. Unfortunately, Ferdinand VII turned out to be a tyrant, and his oppressive rule drove most of his friends, Goya's friends, and eventually Goya himself, into exile. So by 1823, Goya had kind of had enough. He was perpetually under the scrutiny of the Spanish Inquisition and was tired of it. In addition, he was ill all the time. He was stone deaf and suffered under some pretty severe depression, they think. So what he did is he petitioned Ferdinand to see if he could be allowed to go to the Bordeaux Hot Springs for his health, the petition which Ferdinand did grant. So Goya moved to France, eventually settling in Paris, and in 1828 he died. So in 1819, Goya bought a house that was named the Quinta del Sordo, or the House of the Deaf Man. In actuality, it wasn't named for Goya, even though he was deaf at the time. There had been a man that lived there earlier who was deaf, and it just was a coincidence that Goya, who was deaf, bought it. It was the Quinto del Sordo where Goya painted his black paintings. These were paintings that were done by Goya in the latter part of his life. They think probably between 1819 and 1823. They're dark the palette is very strange, not like anything else he'd done before. They're phantasmagorical, they're frightening, they're haunting, and they probably bespeak of an amount of despair and isolation and depression that was going on in Goya's life at this time. I mean, he was 73 years old, which is ancient by the standard of the times. He was gone from court where he'd spent half his life as a painter and had been profoundly deaf for decades. Over the years that Goya was in Quinto del Sordo, he painted these things directly on the walls. Uh, they were like a mind-melting 
combination of dark dreams and despair that went along passageways, went up the stairs, were over doorways. Um, they didn't have names. He didn't ever name them. But nobody really knows what they meant or why he did them. I mean, imagine that. Surrounding yourself with such bestiality, such horror, such despair of humanity. It's really interesting what must have been going on in his mind at that point. I mean, only he was meant to live with these. There's a quote from an uh, art historian who said, these paintings are as close to being hermetically private as any that have ever been produced in the history of Western art. That is, unless we're talking about Henry Darger, but that's a really scary story for another time. The series is made up of 14 paintings. Atropos, or The Fates, Two Old Men, Two Old Men Eating Soup, or Two Old Women Eating Soup, depending on who you ask, Fight with Cudgels, Witches' Sabbath, Men Reading, Judith and Holofernes, A Pilgrimage to San Ysidro. And by the way, I read an article that talked about how one art historian felt that Goya would always stick famous people's faces in his paintings, especially his darker paintings and works. And he pointed out, if you take a look at the pilgrimage to San Isidro, if you look right in the center of it, he says that's the image of Napoleon Bonaparte and sort of highlights it. And sure enough, sure looks like Napoleon to me. Women laughing. Procession of the Holy Office, The Dog, and here's another painting I have to make an aside on. I thought it was a painting of a dog on a sunny day in Madrid, peeking his head over the top of a sun-drenched wall. Well, it's not that. It's actually a painting of a dog drowning, and the dog can barely keep his head above this yellow mass of a wave. And I'm not going to say that it ruined the painting for me because it is one of my favorite paintings, but it sure changed the way I look at it. And now I can only look at it with kind of despair and sorrow. La Leocadia, Fantastic Vision, and finally, the piece I really want to talk about, Saturn Devouring His Sun. So let's start with a description. The background is black. The limbs and head of Saturn seem to pop out of the shadows. Saturn's eyes are huge and bulging as if he is mad, insane. His fingers dig deep into the back of his child whose head and right arm are already consumed. Saturn is about to take another bite of the body's left arm. The only use of color besides the flesh tones is the splash of red blood covering the mutilated outline of the upper part of the partially eaten, motionless body, which is chillingly depicted in a deathly white. Saturn's visage is highlighted by the black background of the canvas, emphasizing the demonic intent in his surprised eyes. His hair is gray and disheveled, while his skin is an orange hue that is mixing with the color of the black canvas. No longer does Saturn remain as a human. In fact, the picture is a virtuoso rendering of a frenzied psychopath caught in the darkness who is unable to control his homicidal behavior. Furthermore, there's also evidence that in the original image, prior to its being transferred to canvas, the god had a partially erect phallus, thus imbuing the work with an even deeper horror. 
Saturn was castrated again. J. Scott Morgan wrote in his The Mystery of Goya Saturn, The image is ineffaceable, the cannibal god on bended knees engulfed in darkness, the mad haunted eyes and black bloodied mouth, the rending fingers threaded with blood and the ravaged figure in their grasp. A work of such indelible power it seems to have existed before it was created, like some deep-rooted banished memory, inescapable as nightmare. Morgan suggests covering Saturn's eyes one at a time. One more time we look at the painting. Cover the right side of the face, and we see a titan caught in the act, defying anyone to stop him, the bulging left eye staring wildly at some unseen witness to his savagery, his piratical coarseness heightened by sharp vertical lines of the eyebrows, crossed like the stitches of a scar. But cover his left eye, and we are confronted by a being in pain, the dark pupil gazing down in horror at his own uncontrolled murderousness, the eyebrow curved upwards like an inverted question mark as if he were asking, why am I compelled to do this? Morgan continues, as an 18-year-old, I once saw with revulsion only the image of a gruesome giant, father as devourer. 30 years later, the painting still evokes in me an interior terror, a sense of isolation, loneliness, grief. This God on his knees, tearing apart his own child, enshrouded in a blackness that is like a psychic tar, clinging to me, clinging me to him, to a drama of primal murderousness, so that now I seem to be participant as well as viewer. I look upon him, and I am implicated in the crime. I saw Goya's Saturn devouring his son when I was 10 years old, and I'll tell you, my reaction to it was markedly different. I was scared shitless. You know, since my many years in art, you sort of get deluged by art history and how people talk about art and the theory and the criticism of art, and it can get layer upon layer upon layer of stuff from other people mixed in. So even before you see the piece, you've seen it in a book, and you, you have sort of a preconceived notion of what something is going to be, like having been exposed to tons of advertising about the Mona Lisa, I had something in my head about that piece of art. But when you're a kid looking at some of this stuff, you don't have any of those filters on. you got no filters at all. So one of the reasons why I'm, I'm talking about this is I want you to sort of picture, if you will, what it was like for me to walk into the room of the black paintings as a 10-year-old girl. So I'm off wandering around the Prado Gallery and somehow managed to walk into the room with this archway and get hit right in the face with Saturn devouring his son. My mouth is actually dry talking about this. I had never seen anything like it before in my life. It was so horrifying to me, I've got goosebumps, so horrifying to me that it was one of the two rooms that I tried to keep my two little sisters out of because I didn't want them to see it. I don't, didn't want them to be afraid of it. I didn't want them to experience what I was experiencing. And what affected me, I think, more than anything was and I can put words to it now, but at the time, there weren't words to go with, along with how I was feeling. When I took a look at that Saturn painting, it was as if that thing was standing right in front of me. It was present in a way that no other paintings or sculptures to that point I had seen being present. It had invaded my space. And 
what it looked like to me was I was next. And it spoke of horror, even in my kid's mind, it spoke of horror, of madness more than anything. It, it seemed like brainless fury, brainless malice, brain, brainless violence, something that you, something that you couldn't contain, something that, that was unstoppable and that you couldn't reason with it. It was, a, it was like a primal rending and tearing of time and space. And I couldn't move. I remember being rooted to the spot. I was probably gaping with my mouth open, but I couldn't move. And there was something about that little body, that poor little body, and how his fingers had like crushed into the flesh. And it was this, it became like the worst childhood fear I could ever have imagined. And man, I'll tell you guys, I was full of childhood fears. I had nightmares for years. I was afraid of the dark. I'll get into it some other time, but I was a perpetually terrified child. And this seemed like it was the encapsulation of the worst, worst thing I could possibly, possibly imagine and think of. So the power of this piece was not lost on me. And it overwhelmed me with fear. And from that point on, I think subconsciously at least, it became my favorite painting in the world. I don't think favorite is the best word to describe it, but it became the most powerful and most meaningful painting or piece of art of any art I've ever seen in my life. And part of it is because now that I have words to articulate this, it's because of that timelessness and placelessness. The fact that something could be painted in the 1700s and still speak to me so personally and eloquently and right in my face. And tapping into something that is so horrifying that somebody had to get it out on a wall. I spent a lot of years as an artist being very afraid of the things in my own head, the things that I wanted to portray, the things that moved me to create. And seeing this painting was one of the first steps that I could take to realizing that you got a tiger by the tail here, and if you can tap into it just right, you can make something that is powerful and ageless, and it gives you some distance to the things that are haunting your own head. And it gave me courage, shall I say. This horrible image gave me courage to create the kind of art that I wanted to create or had to create or was compelled to create. To quote Morgan again, human beings are made free only by their admission of their darkest fears and impulses. And this admission, unalterably expressed, seems to have granted Goya a sense of well-being, as did the entire series of black paintings. Javier, writing after his father's death, quote, referred to the pleasure Goya had experienced in viewing daily in his house those pictures he had painted for himself with freedom and in accordance with his own genio, unquote. In other words, the very painting that the world shudders at, one of the most horrifying paintings in the Western genre, somehow had given its creator peace. I know the feeling, because it's the same with me. 
Well, folks, thank you so much for joining me for episode two of Artists Obscura, Castration and Cannibalism. Again, if you'd like to see the artwork referenced, you will find that in our show notes. And be ready for our next episode, which is the grisly tale of the DeWitt brothers, or Two Swingin' Dudes. Artist Obscura is produced by Kathy Rick and Nathan Wilson. Our sound engineer is Nicholas Wilson. Please follow us on social media and check out our YouTube channel for unabridged episodes and more. If you liked what you heard, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash artists obscura.